Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking news. Just five days after the president announced on Twitter the date and location for his summit with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, North Korea is threatening to cancel it. Now, the summit still may happen June 12th in Singapore, as the president announced just days ago. But there is certainly a new dose of doubt tonight. North Korea suspended talks with South Korea and says that the United States should carefully consider the fate of the summit because of what it calls provocative military disturbances with South Korea. They're referring to a joint military drill conducted by South Korea and the U.S., an exercise called Max Thunder involving the United States Air Force and South Korean forces, with about 2,000 troops participating, according to the Department of Defense. Now, North Korea is calling the drill a, quote, deliberate provo- provocation. North Korea's threat to call off the summit caught the White House certainly off guard today, according to aides. State Department spokesperson Heather Nauer took the podium for a briefing just as the reports were coming in. Kim Jong-un had said previously that he understands uh, the need and the utility of the United States and uh, the Republic of Korea continuing in its uh, joint exercises. They're exercises that are legal. They're planned well, well in advance. Uh, we have not heard anything from that government or the government of South Korea to indicate that uh, we would not continue conducting these exercises or Uh, that we would uh, not continue planning for our meeting between President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un next month. So a surprise at the State Department and in the White House, Robert Sanchez joins us tonight. So what was the reaction? How surprised was the White House about this announcement today? Hey there, Anderson. Yeah, apparently they were blindsided by this news from North Korea that the regime planned to cancel talks with South Korea and that warning from the North Koreans that they may cancel altogether the planned meeting with uh, President Donald Trump in Singapore about a month from now. Sources indicating that aides were completely caught off guard. One senior administration official actually telling us that the president found out about this development through news reports, that they didn't hear this directly from Pyongyang or even from uh, Seoul. And perhaps this sort of showcases just how unexpected this news is, the idea that there had been this recent momentum moving toward that summit, acts of good faith on both sides, whether President Trump uh, calling Kim Jong-un smart and gracious or Kim Jong-un releasing those uh, American prisoners and allowing the return Uh, to the United States last week, it really underscores something that we've heard from critics uh, and skeptics within the administration, including National Security Advisor John Bolton, who over the weekend pointed out the history here, the fact that there have been previous deals made with North Korea before that they have ultimately violated. Anderson? They now issued a statement, correct, the White House? 
Oh, they have. Yeah, it took some time, frankly. Uh, apparently, the communications shop was consulting with uh, the Department of Defense as well as with the National Security Council. Ultimately, here's the statement put out by Press Secretary Sarah Sanders. She writes, quote, we are aware of the South Korean media report. The United States will look at what the North Korean or rather what North Korea has said independently and continue to coordinate closely with our allies clear here that the administration understands they have to walk a very fine line if they still want this summit to happen. Also notable because President Trump has been so brash uh, going back several months in his language about North Korea. He did have a chance, multiple chances, to answer reporters' questions today as he went to visit with the First Lady at Walter Reed Medical Center after she underwent a successful operation yesterday. He returned here to the White House without answering our questions, Anderson. All right, Boris, thanks very much. Join me now for his take on all this. Retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, who served as the spokesman for both the State Department and Pentagon during the Obama administration. So I'm wondering, Admiral, how big a deal is this? I mean, could it be just a bit of brinksmanship, North Korea trying to improve their negotiating power? Well, first, we have to admit that we don't actually know what's in Kim's mind. And so we have to caveat everything by not having perfect knowledge and intelligence of what he's actually trying to do. I do not think that this will torpedo the summit. I don't think it was intended to. I think, you know, just talking to Korea experts myself, uh, that this was a way for him to protest the exercises without doing so in a way that actually puts the summit at great risk. And he can punish South Korea, which he did by canceling the meeting. And if you look at the language in that statement, it's pretty bellicose about the South, not so bellicose about the United States. So I, I think this was a way for him to, to get on record that he doesn't like these exercises, but not do it in a way uh, that really takes everything down with it. Does it make sense to you that this is happening uh, ostensibly over military exercises, frankly, that happen every year and ones that Kim right. Jong-un seemingly you know, seemed flexible about earlier this year? Right. Anderson, great question. And we have to look at not just what he did today, but what he didn't do. He didn't fire off a bunch of missiles. Last year, at this time, when we did these two exercises, you remember, Anderson, he launched, I think, six or seven uh, missiles into the ocean uh, and, and was correspondingly, you know, very bellicose in his rhetoric. He, he hasn't done that. I mean, we've been doing full eagle now for over a month. Uh, this exercise just started, but we've been exercising and there's been no reaction. It's been very mute. And he released three Americans in the midst of these exercises. So we have to keep it in perspective of what he's not doing. Mm. And that's why I don't think he's really trying to torpedo the summit. North Korea says that the exercises are ruining the diplomatic mood. Uh, I'm not sure how one gauges <laughs> that, but, but uh, I'm not sure, even sure really what that means. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, again, this is typical for them. This is something that they, they've, they've done before, uh, and they've you know, reacted harshly. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what he means by that in terms of mood. Clearly, I think what he's trying to say is that the exercises, which are designed in his mind to threaten him, are not in keeping with the spirit of diplomacy and moving towards peace. And look, I mean, if you look at it from his perspective, you can kind of see, I mean, he views the United States as an existential threat. So exercising American capabilities on the other side of the border, you can understand where he's coming from. We know that they're, they're defensive in nature. Uh, but I, again, I, I, don't, I don't think he's trying to ratchet it up too high. It's also interesting, the, the idea that the administration, you know, was, was caught off guard by this. Yeah. It does give you a sense of, of the... You know, it's not like there's a, a, a hot phone between the president and Kim Jong-un as there was during, you know, the Cold War in the, in, in the Soviet Union. 
Yes, but, and I agree with you 100%, but Pompeo has now started to develop relationships. And one of the, one of the advantages of summits and, and negotiations, such as we learned with Iran, is you can open up back channels of communication. Mm-hmm. So there were channels that could have been used here for them to protest things. That's why I think doing it in a press release the way they did was really meant more a, a bit of brinkmanship, a bit of showmanship, kind of slapping South Korea around uh, and making it clear that he's not going into this summit uh, anything other than clear-eyed. Yeah. Admiral Kirby, thanks very much. As we've noted, with being yes, unpredictable is absolutely nothing new when it comes to North Korea. Joining us tonight is New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, author of the book, Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. I spoke to him just before the broadcast. Tom, with North Korea warning the U.S. over the fate of the summit, I mean, should anybody really be surprised that the road to the summit is not going to be an easy one? Well, you know, Anderson, when you think about North Korea, you think, how many times have they sold this carpet of denuclearization? Uh, at least to three different presidents, I believe. So uh, one would have been shocked if this hadn't happened. One would be even more shocked if the deal comes off. And one will be truly bowled over if they actually agree to a verifiable denuclearization plan. I- I've just never known where the bottom of the story was, but I keep coming back to the fact they have sold this carpet at least three times before. Yeah, I mean, this is t- we, we have seen this time and, and time again with the North Koreans. What do you think their calculus is? You know, it, it, it's really hard to know. They clearly are feeling some pressure. If there is one meeting, Anderson, in the world, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall on. It would have been the meeting between Xi Jinping, the president of China, um, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. They had two meetings now in the last month. And you really have to wonder, what was Xi Jinping saying to him? Was he saying, hey, you got to denuclearize? Or was he saying, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, president of North Korea, we love, we love Korea so much, we always wanted there to be two of them. You're not going to do anything crazy, are you? Like denuclearize and merge with the South. So the Chinese, I think, have very mixed emotions on this. They'd like the Americans out, but at the same time, they do not want a unified Korea on their peninsula. As we felt about Germany during the Cold War, China feels about Korea. They love it so much, they want there to be two of them. Uh, I'm wondering also what the calculus of Kim Jong-un is, or what their opinion is when they look at the United States. I mean, obviously, you've seen President Trump you know, withdrawing from the Iran Agreement, TPP, um, obviously making very, very bellicose statements, which a lot of people credit uh, for getting Kim Jong-un to the table. Uh, How do you see that? I would say he he could draw one of two conclusions. One is, my God, I mean, uh, the Iranians struck a nuclear deal with him and uh, the guy welched on it. What's going to happen to me? Um, uh, I better be doubly careful. That's one direction he could go. The other is if he's been watching Trump on China trade, uh, the fact that Trump, um, you know, just over the weekend on his own uh, tweeted that we have to worry about jobs in China now and um, we have to not sanction this Chinese company that violated uh, in a a really bad way our trade export laws, uh, sending equipment to, uh, I believe, North Korea and Iran. Um, uh, He might think Trump's a chump. And that uh, if I get in a room with him, he'll be so hungry for a deal to make history. He'll be so panting for a Nobel Prize. Uh, maybe I can um, outmaneuver him. The, the, Kim Jong, you know, right. Think about it, really. Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump negotiating in Singapore. What could go wrong? <laughs> I, I, it is kind of stunning when you consider just how much uh, kind of the visual of this is important to North Korea, just the to be seen. I mean, this is something that they have always wanted to be one on one 
with the president of the United States. So for them, that's a great victory, whether or not anything comes out of it. And I guess President Trump, who certainly likes a big show, who likes that that big presentation, um, gets something out of it, even if, you know, the details that later are worked out don't really pan out. Uh, I think there's a difference. Uh, Kim Jong-un can completely control the spin on the story when he goes back to North Korea. Ain't no CNN there. Uh, Donald Trump can't. And if Donald Trump comes back empty-handed, I think he would be eviscerated uh, not only by his opponents, but by by some of his allies in the Republican Party. But even if there's a, a quote unquote, agreement after a day or two days of meeting between the two men, I mean, the, the details on something like that, that has to be worked out over weeks and weeks, but with, with lots of lots of people and moving parts. Can you imagine the verification, well, just think about the verification regime we put in place in Tehran, how complicated that was, how many months it took for our Secretary of Energy at the time, Ernie Moniz, a physicist, uh, to work out and oversee the fine-grained details of that so there could be no cheating. Imagine what you'd need in, in North Korea, an even less transparent country. It's also starting to have heard the president of the United States call Kim Jong-un honorable. Yeah, that doesn't bother me really so much, Anderson. I mean, he's, he's building him up. He's building up his ego. That probably comes out of some CIA report, you know, um, how to soften him up. And, and Trump can be very good at that. I mean, look, I, I, I want to be very clear. If he could somehow maneuver him into giving up his nuclear weapons in a verifiable way, that would be a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing for the world. Great for America. And, and uh, Donald Trump would deserve a Nobel Prize for that. I'm all for it. But just one has to really be skeptical, given, as I said, how many times the North Koreans have sold that carpet. We're going to have more of my talk with Tom Freeman in our next hour. But first, more breaking news. The New York Times just now reporting that both the Justice Department and the FBI are, in, are, uh, are uh, investigating Cambridge Analytica, that now defunct political data firm that was accused of misusing the personal data from millions of Facebook users. I'll talk to one of the reporters from The Times who broke the story. Plus, a federal judge rules that the special counsel's case against former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort can proceed. A significant development. Details on that ahead. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. Breaking news from the New York Times tonight. It is reporting that both the Justice Department and the FBI are investigating the now defunct political data firm Cambridge Analytica. Now, you remember the company worked both for the President, uh, President Trump's election campaign as well as other Republican candidates in 2016. It's come under fire for allegedly misusing the Facebook data of millions of users. Matthew Rosenberg shares the byline of the story, joins us now on the phone. So talk to me about what you've learned about this investigation. Um, it looks like it's in its early stages. Um, we know that at least two DOJ prosecutors who specialize in financial fraud and an FBI agent who we believe is, is deals with cyber crimes went to London earlier this month to question at least one witness, possibly more. Um, and look, that speaks to a, a significant investigation here. Prosecutors are not brought in for fishing expeditions. They're brought in to possibly build cases. 
um, people who have been questioned or contacted have been told that it is, all they've been told is there is an open investigation involving Cambridge Analytica and associated U.S. persons, as they put it. Um, they're not clear on who exactly that, that is. Is it clear to you what the focus of, of the investigation is? I mean, what is the, the uh, what's the allegation? I mean, that's the thing. It, it's, so officially, the Justice Department and the FBI just won't comment. Um, given the people involved and the fact they've also reached out to banks that did business with Cambridge Analytica, they seem to be looking to some financial um, issues. Uh, the cyber kind of component would possibly, there have been allegations of hacking. And there is, of course, the harvesting of data, the use of the data, of how they obtained data from Facebook and how they used it. And this kind of runs parallel to a, a another investigation that's going on in Britain by their national crime agency, which is looking into hacking, which is looking into destruction of evidence um, and a whole range of kind of issues. Now, is this connected to the Mueller probe at all? So that's, that's not clear to us. We know that, that, that the Mueller's, people from Mueller's team questioned two Cambridge Analytica executives in December. Um, we don't know what went beyond that. Mueller's team is obviously pretty tight-lipped. And exactly what the relationship here, and if there is any, just isn't clear right now. And I understand the investigators have contacted Facebook as well. They have. And look, I think I want to be clear that the people we've spoken to and Facebook don't appear to be targets of this investigation. These are potential witnesses. It would be natural to be in touch with Facebook. Uh, the data was taken from them, and they would, they would know a lot about it and have a lot to provide and um, possibly add there. And, and in the introduction to you, we mentioned the company did work for the Trump campaign and other Republican candidates. Uh, do we know if the investigation touches either the Trump campaign or any campaign at all? I, I, so that's, that's also, you know, one of the big questions here. Look, the, the company was owned. The U.S. people who owned the company were, were Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca. Its vice president was Stephen K. Bannon. Um, you know, these guys have tremendous influence in Republican politics. And, and any investigation to the company is, is they are going to be drawn into it. So, I mean, the, the kind of the bottom line in this hour, and, you know, as you said, uh, rightly, there's a lot that's still to be learned. The bottom line is Cambridge Analytica certainly is not out of the woods yet. Not even close. I mean, this is an early beginning of an investigation. There are prosecutors flying to other countries to question people. It, it just seems that, you know, you can shut yourself down and you can say, well, we can't do business because of all the bad reputational things that have happened to us. But, you know, you're still going to have to contend with the law. Yeah. Matthew Rosenberg, appreciate it. Uh, more to come. We have more breaking news. A federal judge in the District of Columbia has just ruled the bank fraud trial against Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign manager, can proceed. Now, that case, of course, brought by the special counsel, Robert Mueller. A different, we're talking to say a different federal judge has ruled on this today than the one in Virginia who had assailed the Mueller investigation earlier this month. Judge T.S. Ellis said that a parallel bank fraud case against Manafort wasn't really the point. Uh, the charges, he said, were really aimed at prosecution or impeachment of the president. Senator Murray now uh, has more details. So what was the judge's ruling or reasoning for this ruling today? Well, look, Manafort is basically trying to make the case that Mueller has overstepped his authority, that he shouldn't be bringing these charges against Manafort. Uh, and, you know, these are to do with financial crimes before Manafort was working for the campaign. And the judge was not at all impressed by this argument. Uh, she pointed out that, look, we know that Paul Manafort was in the upper ranks of the campaign. We know that he has ties to Russians. We know that he did lobbying work on behalf of Ukrainian politicians. So uh, in part of her opinion today, she wrote the special counsel would have been remiss to ignore such an obvious 
biggest potential link between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. That's just a taste of sort of how strong her ruling was. Now, as for Paul Manafort, he's still maintaining his innocence in all these charges. A spokesman for Paul Manafort put out a statement today saying Paul Manafort maintains his innocence uh, and looks forward to prevailing in this matter. And as you pointed out, this is just one of the courts where Manafort is arguing. Right. So explain that, because it is a little bit confusing. As I talked about, the ruling comes on the heels of the other judge uh, earlier this month questioning Mueller's authority to bring these charges so there's there's two cases, there's two different courtrooms going on. That's right. There are two different courtrooms where this sort of theater is playing out. This one was in D.C. and previously, earlier this month, Manafort was making a similar argument in Virginia, again saying that Mueller has overstepped his authority. And in this case, the judge seemed much more sympathetic to Manafort's argument, essentially going to prosecutors and saying, look, I think that you guys are just using this to go after President Trump, potentially to try to impeach him. I don't think you really care that Paul Manafort uh, committed bank fraud, if that, you know, if that's what you're alleging here. I don't think you really care about these charges. We think this is all about getting after Trump. Now, it's important to note that the judge in this case has not made a ruling yet, but there are starkly different tones uh, in these two different courts where Manafort's trying to argue his case. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Joining me now to talk about it, CNN Chief Legal Analyst Jeffrey Tubin. Can you just explain to me why two courts? I mean, I'm, well, I know this is stupid, but No, why? It's, an, it's a very unusual situation. Um, the Mueller office has brought two cases against Paul Manafort, charging similar but not identical crimes. And one in Virginia and one in the District one of Columbia. One in Virginia, one in, in D.C. Why bring them in different places? The, the, that is, uh, it's not clear to me. It's, very, it's odd. I think it, 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 some of it has to do with ve- the law of venue, about where the crimes took place. You can't bring a charge in a jurisdiction where the crime didn't take place. That seems to be it, although venue is sometimes something prosecutors can, can okay. be a little flexible about. But Manafort made essentially the same motion to dismiss each of the cases, one in Virginia, one in D.C., saying Mueller doesn't have the authority to bring this case. In the argument of the Virginia case, the judge said a lot of things that were unsympathetic to Mueller and sympathetic to right. Manafort. Didn't make a ruling, but made noises that that were sympathetic to Manafort. Today, the judge in Washington, Judge Jackson, she said this case is fine to proceed to trial, completely rejected all of Manafort's arguments. That ruling is not binding on Virginia, Mm -hmm. but it certainly will be read by the judge in, in Virginia. And it is unusual to have judges in identical issues come up with opposite conclusions. So I think the Mueller office has to be not only pleased about the D.C. ruling, but the the effect on Virginia as well. So the bottom line, at least on the D.C. trial, is it's going to trial. Right. And, and, and I think that's very. Do we? Very, do you have a? T- is there a timeline on that? Um, it, it's it's currently scheduled for the summer, but I, you know, th- those tend to once once there's a trial date, the judges tend to uh, sometimes be sympathetic to defense requests to delay it. There's also the possibility of one or both parties saying this shouldn't go on during the campaign. So if uh, if the uh, the Virginia court as well goes along with what the D.C. court said. Is it possible for Manafort to be battling? Will it continue to battle in two courts? Throughout? Absolutely. So you, can both trials run concurrently? No, they can't. They can't run concurrently. The judges have to coordinate their schedules. You know, the same person, the same lawyers can't appear in both trials. But 
it, it, it just underlines how difficult Manafort's situation is to pay lawyers for two sets of trials, right. both of which are complicated. And I think the real message of today uh, is that it really increases the pressure on Manafort to plead guilty and cooperate. Hmm. That's the real, uh, you know, I, I think, end, resu- end result the Mueller team wants. Sure, they'll try this case if which they have Which, in fact, to. you're agreeing with what the judge in Virginia was saying, which is the truth of this is it's not really these charges, it's... Uh, it's getting him to flip. That's right. But what was so odd about where what Judge Ellis said in Virginia, which he did say, you know, you're just trying to get him to flip. That's why prosecutors bring cases right. all the time. That's I what mean, prosecutors that, do. Yeah, that's what prosecutors do in the United States. They don't do it in other countries necessarily. It's, but our system is very much geared towards flipping people and trying to get them to cooperate. Judge Ellis seemed shocked by that. Judge Jackson in D.C. said... That's things, how things go. All right, and so goes Jeff uh, Tubin. Thanks very much. Uh, multiple Republican senators are now calling for a public apology for a White House aide's comment about Senator John McCain, either from her or from the White House. Some of them met with the president today. question is, did they actually bring it up to the president's face? We're keeping them honest next. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com slash CNN. Another day has gone by without the White House apologizing for an aide's statement about American war hero and long-serving Senator John McCain. The White House aide saying that McCain's opinion on the president's pick for CIA director didn't matter because, quote, he's dying anyway. The senator, as you know, is at home in Arizona battling brain cancer. There was a meeting scheduled today, a lunch with the president and Republican senators. Seems as though no one spoke about McCain and the need for an apology to the president. No. No, the issue didn't come up. Didn't come up. Senator John Kennedy said the president talked for 45 minutes about, quote, quite an array of subjects, but not this one, certainly not an apology. And as you know, the White House aide, Kelly Sadler, called Meghan McCain to apologize, but has not apologized publicly. Now, a source told CNN that she had promised Meghan McCain that she would do so, but she's not. Neither has the president or anyone at the White House. In fact, they're trying to turn this into an issue of leaks and turn away from what it actually is, an issue of just human decency, one that no one decided to broach with the president today, even as some Republican lawmakers are calling for the White House to do the right thing. Here's Senator Susan Collins. The comment was denigrating and insensitive. John McCain is an American hero. He's a United States senator, and he's a good friend of mine. The best way for this to be put to rest, and it should have happened immediately, would have been for the White House to issue a public apology to the entire McCain family. Trump should, too, the president himself. I think it would be helpful if the president made clear that those kinds of comments are not acceptable, rather than criticizing the leaker. And this came from Senator Jeff Flake. I don't understand it. Uh, why you just don't apologize and move on? And that, that would be easier to do. Um, you know, it wasn't the president making the statement, but uh, but I'm sure if he asked her to apologize, she would. So I, I don't know why he hasn't. I really don't. We saw Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell earlier talking about this. He actually went to Arizona over the weekend to visit Senator McCain. A statement from his office said McConnell didn't want to miss the chance to tell McCain how much his friendship meant to him. Here's Mitch McConnell today. Well, 
Well, the person who said that should apologize and should apologize publicly. So all three of those senators agree McCain deserves an apology. None of them brought it up uh, in that meeting or no senators brought it up in the meeting, apparently, with the president. They say in front of the cameras, crossing this president is not something many Republicans are willing to do, even in defense of a fellow Republican with a long record of service and brain cancer. Joining me now is Tony Schwartz, who wrote The Art of the Deal with Mr. Trump and is a contributor to the new book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Tony, thanks for being with us. The, it seems like I mean, we know President Trump does not apologize. The Access Hollywood tape is the only really evidence of it. I've talked to him about it. He says he doesn't ask forgiveness from God. He couldn't remember a case of doing that. And he certainly doesn't issue public apologies. It seems like that filters down throughout the whole White House, that message. Well, first of all, I would imagine that uh, he either directly or indirectly made it clear that he didn't want Sadler to to apologize because it would reflect on him. And And his view is weakness? Without question. That is the heart of it. If you apologize, you are wrong. Look, if you live in a highly binary world, if your worldview is it's black or it's white, it's good or it's bad, if you're not good, you're bad. You either win or you're a loser. You win or you lose all of these. Then you only have one choice if you want to end up feeling that you are good. And that's that's the circumstance that Trump always finds himself in, because To admit and acknowledge, whether it's him or anybody who works for him that might reflect on him, that he's done something wrong is to admit that he's bad. That's his internal experience of it. It's so interesting to me, though, his idea of strength is so uh, sort of cookie cutter. So, I mean, it's it's almost cartoonish what how he defines strength. And I assume the definition of strength for him is not apologizing. Part of that is never admitting you're wrong. Well, I don't even think it's a calculation or an analysis or an opinion. I think it's an impulse and an instinct that emotionally, psychologically, he's incapable of it because it's shattering to him to feel that he's wrong. Did you, in in all your time that you spent with him with the art of the deal, did you ever hear him apologize for something? No, uh, even uh, no. And it would stun me if if he had. It is 30 years later, and it's possible that he did. No, I, I, I would say I'm pretty confident he never did. And he would be derisive of someone who did. His father didn't apologize. His, who was really, a, his father didn't? No. I mean, his father was a black and white guy, and he was in the, mo- in the mold of a Roy Cohn, even though they didn't particularly have a relationship. Roy Cohn, who later became somewhat of a surrogate father to, to Trump and who was clearly a mentor— um, his attitude was never apologize for anything. And, 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 and Trump followed from his father to Roy Cohen to himself. And Roy Cohen, I mean, are you saying that Trump learned from Roy Cohen either from, you know, actually involvement or just watching Roy Cohen? Because Roy Cohen was all about attack, attack, attack. Yeah. The, yes, I do think he learned at his knee, if you will, and also at his father's knee. The difference between Roy Cohn's attack, attack, attack and Donald Trump's, and this is by no means to defend Roy Cohn, is that Roy Cohn was a very bright guy. Uh, and he did everything in a highly calculated way, not in an impulsive way. It was way. thought out. It was planned. Absolutely. It was, it, he had figured out what worked. He was well-educated. He was, he was just plain smart. And he made those choices. He thought it worked. What he lacked, as Trump lacks, was any underlying set of values or principles. So there was no 
you know, he was unimpeded. Both Kona and Trump were unimpeded by guilt or shame. But with, with Trump, you're saying with the president, it's more gut. With oh, Roy Cohen, it was more strategic, it's, it's three-dimensional reactive. chess. It's reactive. It's, it's like almost as if I could imagine that night that the Hollywood Access story began to break and he was being surrounded by his aides and encouraged to apologize. And it would be like he was feeling to himself like, oh, they want to pull my teeth with no anesthetic. I, you're like, that's intolerable. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, the, I think it was The Times had reported months ago that he, the president was even raising the idea to people, friends of his, uh, that maybe that was not his voice on the Access Hollywood tape, which is just an, extra, I mean, an extraordinary yes. thing. Yes. You know, it's so interesting that the wonderful uh, uh, writer named Jonathan Hade, who maybe has even been on the show, who, who's written a book, uh, actually, that I have somewhere here, but it, 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 he's a, uh, writes about morality. And uh, what he says, and I agree, is that the impulse comes up. He calls it the elephant. The rider is the more thoughtful part of your brain. Mm-hmm. And the impulse comes up, and it dominates. It comes out. And then the brain ends up being used in the service of rationalizing what the impulse has caused you to do. Mm-hmm. So it's the utter misuse and the ultimate misuse of the prefrontal cortex. But we all do it. And Trump does it in extremis. And, and again, to me, it's if, if somebody on the staff then apologizes by he views that person as weak. It's not only that he views that person as weak. There's no question. And everybody is either in Trump's mind is either weak or strong, is either, you know, rich or poor, is either tough or, 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 or wimpy. Um, but it's also that that person is always reflecting on him because mm. the only person Trump sees at any given moment truly is himself. So everybody is a reflection of him for better or for worse. In this case, if there were to be an apology, it would be for worse. Mm. Tony Schwartz, that fascinating. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. And coming up, President Trump today at a memorial for fallen officers spoke about a Border Patrol agent who died in the line of duty. Some Republicans have been saying that he was attacked. We'll have the latest on what investigators believe now happened. Also ahead, the new reason why Meghan Markle's father will reportedly miss the royal wedding has nothing to do with some paparazzi uh, photographs. It's something more serious. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. President Trump spoke at the annual Peace Officers Memorial Service today, an event honoring families of law enforcement authorities who died in the line of duty. He took pains to point out the violent death of a Border Patrol agent last November. Here's some of what he had to say. Agent Martinez took immense pride and joy in serving his country as a Border Patrol agent. He was extremely proud of what he did. Every day he would go to work and risk his life to keep America safe. He bravely confronted the cartels, the smugglers, the human traffickers, the gangs that threaten our communities. One night last November, Agent Martinez died in the line of duty. It was horrific. It was violent. And he was brave. 
Well, Agent Martinez did risk his life every single day and did die in the line of duty. Exactly what happened, however, is still unclear. CNN's Ed Levandera has more. In the darkness of a West Texas night last November, Border Patrol agents Rogelio Martinez and Stephen Garland were found severely injured in a culvert while patrolling an area near the remote town of Van Horn, close to the U.S.-Mexico border. Martinez suffered severe head injuries and died hours later. Garland survived but doesn't remember what happened. It didn't take long for a sinister storyline to emerge. Agents with the National Border Patrol Council, the union which has strongly supported President Trump, claimed there was evidence suggesting the agents were savagely attacked by drug runners from Mexico. These agents didn't get clipped by a truck. They didn't get clipped by a car. Uh, they were attacked. It's, it's just uh, it's plain to see that they were attacked. Texas Republicans pushed the story even harder. The governor and Senator Ted Cruz also described the incident as an attack. And President Trump used the moment to push for a border wall. We lost a Border Patrol officer just yesterday. And another one was brutally beaten and badly, badly hurt. And we talk about the wall. We're going to have the wall. It's part of what we're doing. We need it. But the problem with this story is... Federal investigators don't believe the agents were attacked at all, and it appears to be some kind of accident. This is the culvert where the Border Patrol agents were found. It sits just off of Interstate 10, where cars are flying by at high rates of speed. And if they fell off of this and into the bottom here, it's about a 10-foot drop into a cement bottom. Three months ago, CNN obtained an internal Border Patrol memo which said that even though it's not clear what happened that night, there was no evidence of a crime. The agents did not have defensive wounds, and the only footprints at the scene belonged to the agents and first responders. Everybody's, you know, they reassure me that, you know, they're going to get to the truth, they're going to get to the truth. But... I mean, here we are weeks later and there's still no answers. With no clear answers, Rogelio Martinez's fiance tells CNN the ordeal is confusing and made worse by the differing explanations for what could have happened on that night in November. And Ed Lavendera joins us now. Um, I, I mean, just horrible what happened to both these, these officers. Where is the, is the investigation ongoing? Is there going to be an answer? It is still ongoing, but the latest information we have um, uh, has really kind of pointed to this being some kind of a accident. However, you know, investigators haven't been able to clearly pinpoint exactly what happened, whether or not it was a passing car or some other kind of uh, freak accident that happened out there in, in that remote area. We just don't know at this point. But they have said all along, and they have been saying a very clear indication from early on, they don't believe that there was anything out there at that scene that indicated any kind of foul play. All right. Ed Levender, appreciate that. We'll continue to follow it. Up next, an update on how First Lady Melania Trump is doing after her kidney procedure. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us. Also, breaking news on another surprised medical procedure. This one reportedly more serious and scheduled for the father of Meghan Markle just days before she's to wed Prince Harry at Windsor Castle. Hey, it's Howard Beck, and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes analyst Richard Jefferson on Bleacher Report's The Full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, 
All I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. President Trump visited the First Lady at Walter Reed Medical Center this evening. It was his second visit to see her after she underwent successful treatment for a benign kidney condition on Monday. First Lady's office says that she is in good spirits. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, joins me now with more insight. Sanjay, the fact that First Lady is staying at the hospital for another two or three days, does that tell us anything? Well, I think that's the, the biggest open question mark here, Anderson. I've talked to several doctors, uh, doctors who perform this procedure pretty regularly, even looked at some of the data in terms of how long people typically stay in after a procedure like this, this embolization. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, most, most patients go home the same day. It's an outpatient procedure for most patients. Some stay an extra day uh, if they're worried about pain or some other problem. But uh, to stay, um, you know, th- four, four days or so, which it sounds like she'll be staying, uh, maybe staying, it's just unusual. I just, just don't know what to make of it, not hearing anything more from her office. It could just be out of an abundance of caution. And this is a dumb question, but how is a procedure different from a surgery? Yeah, well, it's interesting because people use these terms interchangeably and uh, terms do matter here. A surgery basically is when you make an incision uh, in, in, the, in the skin and you're actually going and, and uh, examining, a, in this case, the kidney or an organ directly. Um, with this procedure, it's really kind of like a large IV, Anderson, that goes into a blood vessel and then a catheter is basically threaded to the area right around the kidney and through that catheter is where this embolization takes place. So when the First Lady does leave Walter Reed, any idea based on, on what we know, what the recuperation process might be like? I, I, my guess is that she is going to, especially given that most patients go home the same day, when she leaves in a couple, three days from now, uh, my guess is she's going to be feeling fine, uh, up walking around, taking care of herself, no, no problems. Uh, there may be a little bit of soreness still, sometimes from the procedure, but that's the type of um, soreness that is controlled just with some some ibuprofen or some, some Advil or something like that. All right. Sanjay, thanks very much. We wish you the best. Of course. Thank you. Not a surprise medical procedure that is uh, reportedly expected tomorrow morning for Meghan Markle's father. TMZ is reporting that uh, Thomas Markle has told them he will undergo heart surgery to clear a blockage, repair damage, and put a stent. Now, according to TMZ, Mr. Markle says this is what will, in fact, keep him from walking his daughter down the aisle on Saturday at Windsor Castle when she marries Prince Harry. Seeing as uh, Max Foster is in Windsor, joins us with the latest. Max, what do we know about the procedure that Meghan Markle's father is expected to have this week? Uh, Well, this is what he told TMZ. Uh, They, the doctors, will go in and clear the blockage, repair damage and put a stent into where it's needed. Clearly, he's not going to be well enough after that operation on Wednesday to come here to Windsor to go to the wedding. Uh, So uh, we're back, basically, Anson, where we were last night. uh, But he isn't now coming to the wedding, even though earlier we'd heard that he might possibly do that. Right. I mean, there have been multiple kind of narratives just over the course of the last 24 hours about why exactly he won't be attending the wedding. So just according to TMZ, it is for this health reason. It is. Um, I think, you know, the problem he's created for himself here is that, you know, yesterday when you and I were talking, uh, what I was told, and I 
believe this to be true, uh, that Meghan Markle was desperately upset that her father had said that he wasn't be able to come to the wedding. So uh, Harry, uh, you know, as is his way, uh, started blaming himself a bit for this. He feels that all of this pressure he's put on uh, Meghan because of his profile caused all of this uh, pain within the family. So he sent his people out to speak to correspondents like myself. Uh, to try to send the message out that the media need to give Thomas Markle a break. Then we have the situation that he's gone back to TMZ and said, actually, I've changed my mind. I am going to go to the wedding. And then again, that he's not going to go to the wedding. So they're in the situation where I think, actually, frankly, uh, they're running out uh, of patience with him. Obviously, there's sympathy for his medical condition and the pressure, pressure he's under. Uh, but he can't keep fueling the media machine when they're trying to calm it down on his behalf. So how is, A, how is this playing out with the public in Great Britain? But also, do we know who is going to walk uh, the bride down the aisle? Because her father was supposed to, at last I'd heard. A very... Yeah, very good question. I mean, I think, you know, I'm in Windsor. I've been here all week. Uh, here, there's a great deal of excitement about the wedding. They want to see the fairy tale unfold in the castle behind me. Uh, so they have a lot of sympathy for what Meghan Markle's going through right now with just days to go until her wedding. And it's been thrown into chaos. And she's obviously very upset by it. She has to decide who's going to walk her down the aisle. So a lot of people talking about her mother, Dorian, possibly doing that. Uh, Other people suggesting it might be uh, one of Prince Harry's friends, who's also friends uh, with Meghan. Uh, Some people suggesting it could be Prince William. Um, Possibly she could go for the Scandinavian route here, because if this happens in Scandinavia, then the bride and groom will go down the aisle together. She's got to deal with that. It's a big question for her. It's quite unsettling for her. And then there's the question of who's going to give the speech on her behalf at the reception as well. But, uh, you know... I'm getting the impression now that she's going to do that speech. Mm. She's going to take control of that, which might free up her mother to prepare for uh, walking her down the aisle. Interesting. Max Foster, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Quick programming note. I'm going to be traveling to England for CNN's special coverage of the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Join me for 360 on Friday night, and I'll be live from Windsor for their special day starting at 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. So set your alarm clocks. Get up early. Up next, North Korea threatens to pull out of the summit with President Trump. What it has to do with South Korea when we continue. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.